Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's some tips for maintaining your Trex deck. Um, occasionally wash it with some soapy water or a pressure cleaner. Trex composite decking is low maintenance and won't fade, splinter or warp. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Thorpe is coming in, gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. This is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello everybody, Sam Edmund here. With thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives, we're looking back on the best of your sporting life for 2020. Today, let's revisit our chat with renowned broadcaster, Simon Hill. It's been a mainstay in our living rooms, often in the wee hours for the Socceroos and in prime time for the A-League since crossing from the old dart in the early 2000s. Like Phil Liggett is to cycling, Murray Walker is to Formula One, and Richie Benno is to cricket. Simon Hill is synonymous with some of the biggest moments in Australian football history. He's a broadcaster, a writer, and a presenter, and it's a great thrill to welcome him. Hi, Simon. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Sam. Thanks for asking me. A somewhat fittingly, mind you, because you've never been afraid of taking the plunge in life. We find you at an interesting juncture at the moment, don't we, Simon, uh, in your career? Because after 15 years at Fox Sports, you're moving on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a, an interesting moment, as you, as you put it. Um, a difficult moment in many ways, particularly you know where we're at, uh, not just with COVID, but of course with the changing landscape in the media. Uh, but I, I'm certainly not alone in, in going through those changed circumstances. Um, and I'll be immensely grateful for having had, you know, 14 years with Fox, three prior to that with SBS. Um, I, I've covered so many brilliant events and games, um, and I wouldn't have changed a second of, of any of that. Um, but obviously, I'm, you know, I'm 52, which uh, I'm, I'm not a young man, but I'm, I'm not quite at retirement age yet, so I'm hoping I'm not quite done. <laughs> uh, but we'll have to wait and see what, uh, you know, what, what is next. Uh, at the moment, I'm not quite sure. So, yeah, interesting time. And how, so does that, how does that sit with you at the moment as you approach this next chapter of your life? As you say, it comes at a slightly awkward time in, your, in, your, in terms of your age. I mean, the revelation on social media on your accounts was a surprise and disappointed a lot of your loyal followers. Um, I think I speak for everyone. I say, hopefully, we haven't heard the last of you. Of course, when it comes to football, but how are you approaching it? Well, at the moment, Sam, it's it's still pretty new. Uh, obviously, it was a bit of a surprise when it happened, um, although perhaps less so in other ways. But 
you know, I'm talking to people. Um, I, I'm, so, I'm not trying to be cryptic, but obviously the, these conversations are very much at the embryonic stage because yep. it only happened last week. Um, so I'm hopeful that I, you know, I might continue to have an involvement, not just with football, but with football in Australia. Uh, it may well be that it's uh, in another country. Uh, it may well be that I've worked my last day in football. At the moment, I, I just don't know. Um, but obviously, given you know my involvement in the game here in Australia and my love for football, it's not just uh, you know what I do. It's it's who I am. Um, so I, I want to continue. Uh, I hope I've still got something to offer. Um, but I guess the market will be the judge of that. And. You know, the, the difficulty for me at the moment and other people in football journalism who've, who've uh, you know, stepped out of, of the sports for the time being, I'm, I'm far from being alone. There's, there's a whole raft of football journalists who have uh, moved on in, in recent months. The sports itself is at a, a critical juncture in this country. Um, you know, we, we've not had a good three or four years. Let's be brutally honest about that. Um, the sports needs a reboot. Uh, I trust in James Johnson, but he can't do it on his own. Uh, they need a plan. We, we saw the first sort of tentative steps towards that yesterday with the unveiling of his 11 principles, plus a lot more deta detail on the FFA website. The game needs to really start to move forward uh, over the next 12 months. It has to make progress. Uh, and if it does, then... You know, we're a part of that in terms of broadcasters and journalists. There'll be more opportunities for us if the game starts moving in the right direction. If it continues on its current path, then there won't be. It's as simple as that. We'll come back to the A-League a little bit later on, but you speak of football and how it's not only been your profession, but it shapes you as a person. Let's go back to when you fell in love with the game and how it actually took place, Simon. You were born in Manchester in 1967 and you grew up well, you grew up in one of two halves over there, and you grew up in the blue half. You're a Manchester City fan, and like all uh, family sports followers, you were brainwashed, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, I had no choice, really. Um, my dad was and still is at 85, uh, a Mad City fan. Uh, he's just actually this year given up his season ticket for the first time because he's, he finds the walk between the car park and the ground a bit difficult these days. <laughs> So, but he's been going to watch City since he was, you know, six or seven years old. Uh, my granddad was a City fan all his life, uh, died many years ago. Um, and my great-granddad, who was a guy called Fred Taylor, yeah. actually played for them in 1892. Even before they were known as Manchester City, they were known as Ardwick FC. So it's like a family heirloom. Um, I was taken to my first game when I was uh, five or six years old. I was enrolled as a junior blue, membership number 596. I still remember it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was, it was a family thing. It was a bond with my dad and my granddad. And without Man City and, you know, that love that was imbued in me in the early years, I wouldn't be talking to you now, basically. You were obsessed as a kid, weren't you, Simon, writing all the teams down, I think, much to the bemusement yeah. of your mum? <laughs> yeah, I used to write the teams out. Uh, strange thing to do, really, but... I was so obsessed with the game. I used to write the teams out, 1-11. to 11. Not just, you know, Arsenal, Man United, Man City, but all the way down, you know, Chesterfield, York City. Uh, and, and my mum used to see these reams of exercise books that I'd fill with this nonsense. And, 
Uh, I remember she once said to me, what are you doing this for? That's not going to get you a job when you get older. <laughs> well, it did. <laughs> <laughs> the the football culture back then in England, though, would have been very different to what it is now, wouldn't it? What was the terrace life like for you as you became, you know, an older boy, then a teenager? You know, unfortunately, at around that time, I think tribalism blurred often with hooliganism. What was it like? It was brilliant. And I loved it. Um, and I'm not talking about hooliganism because, yes, it did exist. And there were, uh, you know, odd occasions when you saw it or got pretty close to it. And normally what I did was <laughs> run away from it as far as possible. Um, but of the thousands and thousands of games that I watched uh, growing up as a teenager, and I, I went to, you know, all the grounds where, there was supposedly a lot of trouble. I went on the football special trains. I went on the supporters club coaches. And the amount of incidents, really, you could count on the fingers of one hand. Mm. The trouble was there if you wanted it. And there were gangs and there, there were problems. But I was never interested in it. I, I was there for the football. And I, I missed the terrorist culture. Now, of course, we have all-seater stadiums. And, yes, they're very safe and uh, they're beautiful venues worth millions of dollars but I think we've lost some of the atmosphere um, and the edginess and I mean the edginess in, in in the right sense of the word there was a real frisson to go in on the terrace and you know uh, chanting for your team and there was a bit of bravado but by and large it was it was good natured it was uh, funny there's a lot of banter um, it was just that on the odd occasion yeah it, it spilled over into something a little bit more sinister, and I, I certainly don't condone or defend that. But uh, I think we've lost something in the modern era. I think modern-day sport, whichever code you follow, I think it's become very sanitised. Uh, and really, you know, sports, and particularly football, it should be about the supporters and that unique atmosphere that, that our supporters in particular are able to bring. Uh, and I think we've, we've squashed that to our own detriment. Mm. And every kid obviously has ambitions of going all the way as a player. I asked this question in the in the softest possible light, Simon, but when did you realise the dreams didn't quite match the ability from a playing perspective? Oh, when I was 12. Um, <laughs> I, I, I played for a, a, a junior club side in the northwest of England called Utrington Rovers, which who were a good little team, actually. Um, and this one day, it was sort of a Sunday league team, and I was 12 or 13, and, and, and our manager said to us, uh, try and play your best today, lads, because Eric Mallander's here today. And Eric Mallander was uh, a scout for Man City, very famous in his own way for, for spotting talent and, and you know, taking them onto the professional ranks. So, of course, you know, that particular day, I mean, I, I ran around as though my life depended upon it because I thought this is my chance. Um, no, nah, he never even looked at me. Uh, <laughs> So he, he did actually sign our goalkeeper, a, a guy called Steve Crompton, who remains a friend of mine to, to these days. But uh, Steve, although he signed for City and uh, won the FA Youth Cup with him, he never actually played for the first team, which just goes to show you just how gifted you need to be to play at the very top level. And I, me, I was nowhere near it, and I knew it. <laughs> I, I think you joked somewhere that you did a drinker's degree at university, but yep. did you know you wanted to get into broadcasting then? When did the broadcasting and maybe the football commentary bug just start to nibble at you? Well, I think really almost from that moment where Eric Mallander just you know passed me by uh, because I loved football so much and I still do. 
that I thought, this is what I want to be involved in for the rest of my life. And if I'm not good enough to play it, what's the next best thing? Um, and of course, like many kids of my generation, particularly in Northern England who were football obsessed, I would uh, you know, listen to the radio. Uh, my commentary idol was a guy called Brian Butler, uh, who used to travel all over the world covering football in the days before modern uh, satellite hookups. He was on crackly you know, phone mm. lines from Romania or Bulgaria uh, covering European games in the 70s. And I think that was, I'm not sure I wanted to be a, well, in fact, I didn't want to be a broadcaster per se. I actually wanted to write um, and being a bit left wing, I wanted to write for the Guardian or the Daily Mirror. That was my plan. I wanted to be a football writer, really. The broadcasting uh, came a bit later and uh, a little bit unexpectedly, really. So the job path, though, roughly went from radio in South Wales, I think, to the BBC and then ITV before, of course, it went yeah. into administration. What was the debut game behind the mic, though? Well, th- this is a really interesting one because mo- most young commentators, they, they do a local game, you know, something pretty low-key. Uh, you dip your toe in the water and then you sort of work your way up. Now, I'd worked as a reporter for probably two years when I went to a station in the north of England called BBC Radio Lancashire. And the teams that they covered in those days were Blackburn Rovers, uh, Blackpool, Burnley and Preston North End. Yeah. And at the start of the new season, which was 93-94, uh, my uh, senior producer said, right, we're going to divvy the games up. Um, you're going to go and cover Chelsea Blackburn Rovers <laughs> at Stamford Bridge. And you're going to do commentary. And I said... Uh, okay, you know, I've never done commentary. And he said, well, uh, let's find out if you can do it, shall we? So that was it. My, my debut was at Stamford Bridge, a Premier League game, um, Chelsea-Blackburn Rovers. No so pressure. I, I started right at the top. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Well, it proved to be the platform, no doubt about that. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Next, we'll trace Simon Hill's journey to Australia. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible, of course, by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting to football commentator Simon Hill. Well, Simon, the move down under and SBS, how did that come about? Because it's it's not a small move. No, it's not. It, it's, it's a strange one in many ways. So in 2001, I, I left the BBC. I've been at the BBC for nearly eight years, and I went to a new TV network called the ITV Sport Channel, which was the, one of the early sort of challenges to Sky Sports, who were already the, you know, the preeminent uh, sports broadcaster in the country by then. Unfortunately, after 12 months, that, that network and that channel went into administration because they didn't have a particularly good business plan. So I was out of work, and an old friend of mine from the BBC World Service, a guy called Rob Minshall, uh, who now works up in, in Queensland for the ABC. He was at SBS radio at the time. And he said to me, we met up on holiday. I went to see him, uh, came to Australia for the first time, 2002. I only spent a few days here. And he said, they're looking for a commentator at SBS. Why don't you apply? Uh, and I said, well, wh- why would they want me? They don't know who I am. I live on the other side of the earth. You know, I'm sure there's plenty of commentators. No, 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 you should apply. You should get in touch with them. 
And it, to be honest, he went on about it for so long. In the end, I said, look, when I get back to the UK, I'll send in a CV and a showreel. More to keep him quiet than anything else, really. So I, I did that. And to my utter astonishment, uh, I, I got a, an email a couple of weeks later from Ken Ship, who was then the deputy head of sports, saying they were very interested. Uh, interested. And the, the, the odd thing was is that around the same time, I actually got a job offer from Sky Sports in the UK. Um, and I was sort of on the verge of signing that. But there was something sort of inside me saying, you know, you've always wanted to live overseas, do something a bit different. You know, maybe this is your opportunity. Um, so very bravely or, or stupidly, as it could have turned out, I, I turned down Sky Sports. And I hadn't even been offered the job then at, at SBS, although it was sort of, you know, in discussion. It was dependent upon them getting a visa for me and sponsoring me, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I decided to, to take a bit of a gamble. And, uh, yeah, one of, one of my better decisions, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> although I was worried about it at the time, I could tell you. Oh, no, we're all the better for it. And, and tell me, though, from Northern England to Australia, the culture shock. I mean, 10 being seismic and one mm. being non-existent. Where did it rate? Yeah, it was odd. Um, <clears throat> I mean, when I first landed, obviously the first thing I wanted to do was, you know, dip my toe in the local football culture. So I, I travelled all over Sydney. I watched Northern Spirit and Parramatta Power and Marconi Stallion, Sydney Olympic, all, all those old NSL clubs. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously the landscape was hugely different, uh, clearly much smaller in terms of football than the UK, um, but no less passionate for that. Um, I remember feeling there was an awful lot of politics around the game. Uh, I started working on the World Game, which, you know, was this five-hour Sunday afternoon extravaganza, which was amazing in itself. And I think half of it was taken up with, um, with panel chats on politics. It was, it was like, uh, you know, old men discuss, discussing cabinet meetings. Um, and at the time, of course, I, I didn't quite understand why that was the case. I remember thinking, why aren't they talking about football? But now that I've been here for a long time, of course... I understand that, you know, this is part of very checkered, but also for that very fascinating history of football in Australia. And, um, you know, these days, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm steeped in that culture myself. Uh, and I'm, you know, probably more passionate about football in Australia now than I am about football in England um, because, I, you know, I want to see it succeed. I'm evangelical about it. So, yeah, it's been an interesting journey, but uh, those early days, I remember scratching my head a few times and thinking, what the hell have I done coming here? <laughs> yeah. Well, those early days, of course, it was Les Murray, Johnny Warren, and then obviously yep. later on, you know, Fozzie, Craig Foster, Mark Bosnich. I mean, it's really been a who's who of Australian football that you've worked alongside all the way through. Yeah, and, and the strange thing was, uh, you know, obviously I quickly got to know uh, how famous and, and revered Les and Johnny were. I knew a bit about Johnny, because even before I'd left the UK, I'd read his book, Sheila's Wogs and Pufters, uh, trying to sort of educate myself a little bit on the local football landscape here, even before I landed. But I didn't really know too much about Les. Um, uh, uh, and I knew Craig Foster sort of vaguely, because, of course, he played in England for Portsmouth and Crystal Palace. Knew about the big Aussie stars like Bozza and Harry Kuehl. Uh, and I'd interviewed Tim Cale for SBS before I even uh, left for Australia. So, you know, I knew bits. Um, but it, obviously it's not until you're actually in that culture and working in it every day that you fully appreciate just, you know, what they did in, in a pretty hostile landscape, which incidentally it remains so today, maybe a little bit less so, but it's still hostile. Uh, and the battles that they 
you know, had to fight to just to get recognition uh, for this game that, that we lost. You obviously arrived, as you said, at the tail end of the um, the NSL and then the birth of the A-League, of course. But with the national team, I guess your profession has taken you to some of the great stadiums around the world, but also into some of the more scary, more intimidating locations for anyone, let alone football commentators. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, some of the, I mean, some of the great venues, the Estadio Centenario in, in Uruguay for that first leg in 2005. Yep. That's probably the most intimidating venue I've, I've ever been in, but in, in a very uh, exciting sense. I mean, the whole stadium was full two and a half hours before kickoff. They never stopped making noise throughout the entire uh, afternoon and evening. And when they scored, I can tell you, it was like an earthquake. The whole stadium literally shook. Morales, the big target inside the penalty area from this free kick. Recorbus delivery. Oh, Manfred at the far post goal. It's Dario Rodriguez. Well, would you believe it was the fullback who was left free at the far post. Recoba's delivery was perfect. And Dario Rodriguez has given Uruguay the lead on 35 minutes. It was fantastic. I loved it. Just, But just um, with Montevideo, though, Simon, we obviously knew the reception the team actually got. What was it like yeah. in your travels in and around Montevideo Stadium, to and from the hotel? I mean, how did it affect you as a, as a commentator? No, well, I think what you're referring to is, is what happened in 2001, the first yep. time they went there, where they got a, a very hostile reception. In 2005, if you remember, they were very clever the way they did things, the FFA, uh, even down to the minutest detail of when they arrived at the airport, they had a decoy bus waiting to take the players. So That's one amazing. bus went off that was completely empty, <laughs> and then the players went out the back way into another bus. That, you know, they'd learned from mm. four years prior to that. And so far as we were concerned, well, we were treated with the utmost respect uh, and always have been, to be fair, in most places that we've been to. There have been a couple of exceptions, but you know, by and large... Uh, we've been treated very, very well and welcomed as, as guests. Um, I, I've never had any complaints. We, you know, we've been to some of the uh, some places in the world that have been hit by war, uh, poverty, and we're always warmly welcomed and, and treated very, very well. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you, of course, by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. After this small break, Simon Hill will let us in on some of those most famous moments. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with renowned football commentator Simon Hill. Well, Simon, what are some of the intricacies of football commentary and the level of preparation required to fulfil the duty? Well, I I always say to young commentators that your your most important tool is your research. Never skimp on your research. Uh, Make sure that, you know, whatever teams you're covering, you're across every little bit of information you can possibly glean, not just on the teams, um, but what's going on in terms of, uh, you know, their club, whether the chairman's under pressure or the manager's under pressure. Uh, and also every player that you're going to watch, you need to be across. You need to know which position he plays. You need to know when his birthday is. You need to know whether he's been out for the last three weeks with a hamstring injury, how many goals he's scored, how many assists he's put on. 
you need to have all that information at your fingertips and 99% of it you probably won't even use, but it's there just in case. And I always think the more you research, the more it sinks in. And I, I never skimp on that. Even if it's a regular A-League game, I always put in a full day shift and make sure I'm across every single player. Obviously, if, it, if it's for an international game, you know, particularly if you're doing a, a country, for example, such as North Korea, <laughs> which I have called once or twice, by the way, um, then your research has to go on uh, a little bit more uh, in terms of time spent. But uh, yeah, that, that's the key to it. In terms of you know, your actual delivery on air, I think it's about developing your own style. And you can borrow bits from uh, you know, commentators you like. Um, I, I certainly have done in the past, but you can't copy people. You've got to develop your own style and make it your own personal brand. And I think if you, if you do both those things and you work hard, then you've got half a chance. Because you're the life of a sports commentator. You critique nearly as much as the players, aren't you, in a way? Yeah, I often liken it to uh, that of a referee, really. You know, that you only get noticed when you make a mistake. Yeah. Um, so if you get no comments at the end of 90 minutes, you can pretty much glean that you've had a decent outing. Um, if, you, if you make a howler like a referee, then you'll get smashed for it. Um, it it's, it's a very misunderstood profession. People think it's very easy. And the question I often get asked is, yeah, what do you do the rest of the week? As though I sit around smoking cigars, waiting for Saturday to come around. <laughs> uh, I can assure you that's not the case. There's a lot of preparation goes into it. Um, and it's not quite as easy as people think. You don't just turn up and talk off the top of your head for 90 minutes. Um, so, yeah, it's, it would be nice if, uh, if the art of commentary was um, valued a little bit more. But, you know, I guess that's, uh, modern broadcasting to a large degree it's, it's hugely misunderstood and because of the change in the digital landscape and everybody's got access to a phone everybody can re- record a piece on their iPhone, everybody thinks it's easy. But if John Aloisi can score this goal Australia will be there Are you sure? I'm trying to do my best. 4-2 I can hardly, 4-2. I can hardly He wins it for it. us, John Here's Aloisi for a place in the he World Cup for us. He yeah! scores! Especially as they have the impetus. Aloisi. Cahill. Cahill! Tim Cahill has done it again! What a goal by Tim Cahill! 2-1 Australia! Oh, it's a wonderful moment in Kaiserslautern! Did the fullback bring him down? First time, maybe even second time. Still we go on. Juric has wriggled his way clear. You are, I guess you've had the pleasure and the privilege of, of bearing witness to some of the most amazing moments, but I want to start with, there's so many, but I want to start with the 2005 World Cup qualification, of course, against Uruguay there at Sydney, which has to stand as one of the, the biggest moments in Australian sporting history. I mean, what do you, how does that sit in your mind and in your memory now all these years on? Um, I, th- I think I've said this on many occasions, as, as a professional piece of commentary, that's not my favourite. <laughs> Um, in, in many ways, it was a difficult night, uh, as you'll hear. And I, I've, I've you know, listened to that famous John Aloisi moment, goodness knows how many times. 
Um, Craig Foster was very, very emotionally involved in the outcome <laughs> um, and sort of yelped and screamed all over my commentary. And, and not just during that penalty shootout, pretty much throughout the entire 120 minutes. He did. But, so, hey, but if there was ever a night where that was going to be forgiven, it was that night. Well, and, and that's what I was going to go on to say is that I, I remember at the end of that game going home and everybody says, oh, you must have gone out and had a big night that night. Well, I was cooked. Because I've been in Montevideo four days earlier, so I was jet lagged and I was tired, and it was, you know, the adrenaline was flowing after that call. So, and I remember going home and being quite deflated, not by the result, of course, but by the fact that I didn't think professionally we'd done a particularly good job. Now, as it's turned out, of course, and this is the very interesting thing about commentary, is that people's opinions of what you did on a specific night is very much tied in to how the result plays out in terms of their own emotions. And because that was a wonderful result for Australia, a historic night in so many ways, it's been remembered in a very positive way. And don't get me wrong, I'm hugely grateful for that. Uh, Very pleased and humble that I was able to play a small part in that. But professionally, I didn't think it was the best. I think if the result had gone the other way, I think we might have got a bit more stick for that call. But uh, anyway, we didn't. And I'm, and I'm pleased that we didn't. Just with Fozzie, though, did you have a chat? Did you have the gumption to even have a chat to him at half time about it at the end of full time? Did oh, you? Yeah. You did, but he couldn't help himself. <laughs> I tried. No, he was gone. He was totally gone. Um, you know, I think at one point I, I actually had to hold his hands together to stop him clapping every good pass from uh, a Socceroo play. You know, it was. He was so emotionally invested in it because, of course, he'd, he'd been through something similar himself in 97 yep. with the Iran game. So, you know, it's probably only when the full-time whistle blew and I actually walked out of the commentary box into the maelstrom of 83,500 people celebrating that I fully comprehended. Because, of course, I was a foreigner. I'd only been in the country for 18 months at that point. Um, and, I, you know, I wanted Australia to qualify. Of course I did. But... It's not the same as if you're born in this country and you've been through all those failures over so many years. And just the, the, the sheer relief of people, and it was like a weight being lifted off so many people's shoulders. Um, and I understood it. I, I got it. But during that 120 minutes, it, it was very difficult for me because, you know, obviously I was trying to just call the action as, as professionally as I could. And I, I, uh, I wasn't only having to keep an eye on the action and call the names correctly, but I was, I was having to keep my co-commentator in tow as well. <laughs> and he was just gone. He's gone. Oh, it was just such a hugely emotional night, wasn't it? And then the next year, of yeah. course, uh, the Socceroos get to Germany. Now, you never went close to emulating Craig Foster's excitement, but I reckon if there was ever a moment where you, you sort of threatened to, it was Tim Cahill's brace, obviously, against Japan. That was history-making. It was huge, and we could hear the joy in your voice. So that was a, a powerful moment as well, particularly when the second one went in off uh, both uprights. Aloisi, Cahill, Cahill! Tim Cahill has done it again! What a goal by Tim Cahill! 2-1 Australia! Oh, it's a wonderful moment in Kaiserslautern! And Tim Cahill has come off the bench and maybe won the match for the Socceroos. Magical stuff. Yeah, I think, that, you know, there's when I listen back to that call, A, I, I prefer that call a, a lot more to the Uruguay game. Uh, but B, I think there was, 
you know, genuine notes of astonishment in my voice. And what people forget in the intervening years is Australia were almost dead and buried in that game. You oh, know, yeah. It was 84 minutes and they were 1-0 down. And Husserink made, I think, three changes, three very bold attacking changes, because he had to. Uh, and one of those was, was Tim Cahill. And it paid off in spades. Cahill. Aloisi. Paducah's in an offside position. Aloisi might go on his own. Aloisi! 3-1! It's all over! Three points for Australia! What about that? Japan have collapsed in the closing moments. And John Aloisi, who wrote one chapter in Australian football history back in November 2005, adds a little postscript for the Socceroos. You know, as a commentator, you react instinctively to those moments. So I think and hope that my voice sort of portrayed that. It was like, wow, this is incredible. You know, he's made three changes. Two of them scored. Timmy and Johnny Aloisi scored. And Josh Kennedy basically came on and scared the life out of the Jap- Japanese defence. So, you know, your, your tone and your, uh, your diction, your, your words, hopefully as a commentator, reflect that narrative. You're, you're telling a story. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, emotionally I was invested in, in Australia, wanting Australia to win the game. But more than that, you're... You know, you're incredulous at a story that is unfolding in a way that you didn't expect it to. So I think that's, you know, that's hopefully what I conveyed on the day. The 2015 Asian Cup final, Simon was another one. James Troisi, the dramatic extra time winner. It's obviously the Socceroos' first ever international trophy. As a commentator, do you feel the pressure, for lack of a better word, to do justice to the moment? Yes. I mean, I, I did on that night, definitely. And, and on all the big occasions, you know, you're aware that for all the thousands of games that you do, these are the moments that will be replayed for years on end. So you want to get it right. You want to uh, get the words right. You want to capture uh, the moment in all its glory, particularly if it's for the nation for whom you're calling. Um, so, yeah, there is a lot of pressure and... Uh, you know, that, that that day was another emotionally draining one because if you remember, you know, Australia were 1-0 up with only, uh, I think, a minute or two to go. Oh. And I remember I got a bit of stick from various people uh, for saying the, the line, the champagne is on ice. <laughs> but it was. Um, and, you know, people were saying, oh, you shouldn't have said that, you jinxed us. Well, <laughs> come on, a commentator <laughs> doesn't have any influence on a game. Uh, and then you've got to sort of, you know, lift again. Um and hopefully, you know, I did that for, for the James Troisi winner, which came in in extra time. Juric has wriggled his way clear. Chance! Goal! For Australia! James Troisi! Can that win the Asian Cup? Oh, boy! Listen to this! He found the gap! And James Troisi was the jolly on the spot! Australia lead again! Fantastic memories. Um, you know, great moments. Uh, I, I love Dan Postecoglou, still do, and, and you know the, the way his teams play football. So, 
yeah, but again, very honoured to be uh, you know, a small part of, of that historic moment. No, you very much are. Jeez, it was a great match, wasn't it? There are so many great moments. We could have talked about that for for hours. We're talking to Simon Hill, of course, on This Is Your Sporting Life, all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back very soon to get Simon's thoughts a little bit more on the state of the game in this country at the moment and what's next for the man himself. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, it's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Commentator Simon Hill has been our guest today and he's been and he's seen every high and every low in the A-League's history. But Simon, the state of the game at the moment when it comes to the domestic competition the push for expansion, promotion, relegation, and of course the much de- debated TV rights. You've seen it all unfold from pretty much day one. Do you still have high hopes for the game in Australia? Absolutely. I remain convinced that at some point, when we get it right, <laughs> and that's a big if, um, this game will fulfil its potential. And by fulfilling its potential, I don't necessarily mean that it's going to become the number one viewed sport in the country. I I don't care about that, to be honest. All I want is for this game to fulfil its potential. And it can do that. Um, But for too long, it's been uh, hopelessly divided and fragmented. Um, It's underachieved due to a a various uh, amount of issues, a lot of which are internal, some of which are external. You know, there's there's still a lot of hostility towards this sport from outside it's still seen as a foreign sport which is rubbish it's been played in australia since 1875 equally as long as as at least some of the other sports um so you know we've got a big opportunity we've got the biggest participation base in the country i know people talk about that a lot our challenge as ever is to convert them into fans of the game and to unite all the different stakeholders behind one voice and one vision of the future. Um, if we can do that, then the sky's the limit. And I, I truly believe we've we've still only just begun to scratch the surface of the potential of the game in this country. Because, I mean, you've called massive games, sold out Sydney derbies, Melbourne derbies, grand finals, you know, plenty of big games over the last 15 years here. But it, it just seems from the outside looking in, the fans have become disenchanted and a lot of that atmosphere that we touched on earlier back when you were growing up, the terrace culture, if you like, that was envied by the other codes in this country has dissipated. I mean, what's the key to getting that back, getting that passion back and that energy back? Well, the key to it is not disenfranchising them in the first place, which unfortunately is what we did in 2015. Um, if you remember, there was an article written by Rebecca Wilson, uh, the late Rebecca Wilson, that was plonked on the front page of the Sydney uh, papers, um, essentially labelling football as a game full of hooligans and troublemakers. Mm. Um, it wasn't true. There were some, as there are in, in every sport. Um, and the game looked to its leaders for a response. Unfortunately, the game's leaders maybe because they didn't have football in their DNA, uh, didn't really know how to respond. And in the end, they almost sort of defended the article. Now, the worst thing you can possibly do as a leader of a sport is put your own 
customers, for want of a better word, offside. That's what this game did. I mean, it just even five years on, it, it still beggars belief that they did that. And from that moment on, the fans voted with their feet. And in many ways, I don't blame them. Now, the, the challenge for the new administration, and obviously there's a new regime in now, they have to reconnect and uh, rebuild that relationship with those active supporters because you're right, they were our point of difference. And I maintain the first season of the Wanderers, 2,000 people turned up to be a part of that atmosphere created by the RBB. And yes, there was one or two idiots in there that needed to be rooted out. That's fine. Let the police do their job. But don't tar everybody with the same brush. Yeah, and obviously we want the game back up and, and going, and the, the A-League particularly back up and going you know, before this. But the 2023 Women's World Cup coming to Australia, I mean, how big of a shot in the arm, and how desperately needed it obviously is, but how big of a shot in the arm can that be, do you think? Yeah, look, it's huge. Um, bringing a World Cup to Australia, uh, first time we've had one, is absolutely fantastic. And, uh, you know, the great thing is we have three years build-up. The government has already committed to you know, providing funds for football infrastructure and facilities. That's something that's been missing for a long, long time in this country. The other codes, because they, you know, get more media publicity, there are many more influences in governments and the corporate world. They tend to gobble up the lion's share of, of the corporate dollar and the government dollar. Um, we need to change that. This will help do that. Um, and as I say, we've got three years to, to build up to it, which will be fantastic. And I, I think it won't just help... Uh, women's football, but I think it will help football overall. But again, we, you know, we have an opportunity. We have to capitalise upon it. Now, we've had opportunities in the past. Um, I, I just want to give you two quick examples. Season 12-13, the introduction of the Wanderers. We had Alessandra Del Piero, Shinji Ono, Emil Heskey here. The league was going gangbusters. We should have capitalised upon that, expanded, gone for more marquee players and really driven home our advantage. We didn't do it. 2015, we had the Asian Cup on home soil. Australia won it. They were the nation's darlings. We should have really capitalised upon that. We didn't do it. Mm. We sat on our laurels and waited and thought we'd done it. Personally, with you, obviously, we're speaking at a time where your immediate future is uncertain. But I'm going to operate on the proviso that we obviously haven't seen the last of you. Now, when it comes to your resume, what's missing? I imagine a World Cup final would be at the pointy end of the wish list. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to do a World Cup final. Um, I've done World Cups and called, you know, pretty big games that World Cups. Uh, I'd like to do the final itself. Look, that might be beyond me now. I don't know. But uh, look, as I said, if I never worked another day in football, and I, I certainly hope I do, but if I don't, then I couldn't have any complaints. I've done FA Cup finals, uh, champions, uh, sorry, European games, Premier League matches, Grand Finals, Asian Cups, African Cup of Nations, um, Oceania Nations Cup, you know, all, all sorts and, and many other tournaments in between. I've travelled the world earning a living uh, doing what I love. Um, so I've got no complaints whatsoever. But uh, am I finished? Hell no. You might not, though, because you might become... Your band might just go gangbusters on the charts. Tell us a bit about that, because there's more time to get the sticks out and, um, and play the drums in this band you're in. Yeah, I might, might be a bit late to, uh, to, to launch a rock career, but... Uh, no, hey, that, Rolling that, Stones are still going, Simon. Yeah, well, that's true, but they had, a, they had a bit of a head start on it. <laughs> now, look, I, um, I, I love play, I've always played in bands. Uh, I'm no more than a pub musician, really, but... Uh, I play in a heavy rock uh, cover band called Green Man Alishi in Sydney, and 
I love it. It's, it's a real release and distraction away from football. Um, probably my other great passion in life is, is uh, music, particularly heavy metal music, and that's the sort of stuff we play. So, yeah, I love it. But um, I don't think I'm going to retire on the proceeds, that's for sure. <laughs> hey, the band name, what are the origins of the band name? Um, it was a song that was originally recorded by Fleetwood Mac, right. uh, but it was covered by Judas Priest, uh, which is where we sort of take the name from because we cover a few Priest tracks. So, uh, yeah, that's where it comes from. Oh, I love it. Uh, well, you can't even play a gig at the moment, can you, of course, because of COVID, so you must be itching to get back into that. Well, we, we actually did a, a Facebook Live uh, half-hour gig a couple of weeks ago on our Facebook page, so please check that out if you can. Um, but yeah, we're hoping to get back. I mean, there's one or two pubs in, in Sydney that are starting to have live bands back, I think. So, yeah, hopefully it won't be too long before we're, we're playing a gig. We've had a, we've had a couple of lineup changes, so this would be our, our first gig with the new secured lineup. So we're looking forward to it when it happens. Well, no surprise you're on the drums for mine, Simon. You always had great rhythm, of course, behind the microphone. I've got to say, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Football rose to prominence in this country, it must be said, and it was made all the more enjoyable with your voice to accompany it. Like the game itself, we really hope you'll rise again, and we're sure you will. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope so too. Thanks for having me, Sam. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to the best of This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll catch you next week with the man who just keeps on punching, Scotty Palmer. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91